0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: Welcome, 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 welcome. to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to be hearing Dr. Peter Hotez He's the dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, also the co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. Dr. Hotak testified before the U.S. Congress on COVID-19 and how to develop a vaccine last Thursday. Jason Kenny, we're going to play back some of the interview that we aired with the, the premier of Alberta on the energy issue, also what the premier has in store for the Prime Minister when all the premiers meet with Justin Trudeau in the coming days. Also on our podcast today, the President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Dan Kelly, are Canada's number one employers ready for COVID-19. They're just trying to recover from the rail blockades and the Spanish flu, 1918 to 1920. Up to 100 million people globally died. Dr. Ann Herring is an anthropologist, retired recently from McMaster University. She's an international expert on the so-called Spanish flu. And uh, Dr. Herring will talk to us about that flu, how it developed, and particularly what happened in this country. Dr. Hotez, thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it greatly. I've been watching you and listening to your interviews and learned a great deal. Let me ask you this. Are we on still on a learning curve, a steep learning curve about COVID-19?
2: Well, thanks for having me uh, today, and uh, greetings to Hamilton, Ontario. Um, yeah, we are. We, um, we've learned a lot about this virus in a few weeks, probably more about a new virus infection in this few weeks than any other virus infection in human history because of, we've been able to apply all the new technologies to its study. But unfortunately, we still have a lot to learn about it. We don't really understand all the different ways it's transmitted, why it's so contagious,, uh, why it affects older people more than younger people, why kids don't seem to get sick. The list goes on and on. So you know we've learned a lot, but there's still more we don't know than we do know about this.
0: Okay I should tell you as well that you're listening or people who across Canada are listening to you on this program. so that's uh, it, it, there's so many different developments across this country as well, with British Columbia leading the country as far as unfortunately in deaths and and, and uh, COVID-19 cases, Ontario, not far behind as far as cases are concerned. Why, the, uh, this is probably a self-explanatory question, but I have to ask it anyway. Why people over the age of 60? What's magic about 60?
2: Well, it's not even really 60. You know, when you look at, well, right now we only have really strong data maybe coming out of China and Korea. We'll see if it's reproducible in North America. So far, it looks like it is, unfortunately, from our terrible experience we just had in Seattle this last week. Uh, but um, it really seems to pick up, especially over the age of 70, and especially uh, with uh, patients who have underlying chronic debilitating conditions, including diabetes or, or hypertension. And I don't think we really understand that. And and there is this interesting diabetes link, for instance, with the number of infectious disease And we don't understand that either. There's some interesting hypotheses out there. But you know, we, uh, you know, in case you had any doubts, whether what occurred in Wuhan is also true in in North America, with this virus is mowed down uh, 11 as of yesterday, but I'm seeing some numbers suggesting it just went up to 15 in one nursing home uh, in in Kirkland, Washington. Uh, So this virus raced through it and uh, killed so many people. And so that to me, is a wake-up call that we need to do a much better job looking after our older populations, especially those in uh, institutionalized settings.
0: I heard and read that you said that in 2016, research was halted on a vaccine which may have cross-protected against COVID-19. Did that happen? Uh, more or less.
2: Uh, we we were funded by the National Institutes of Health uh, to develop coronavirus vaccines. We have a program at our National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital to develop vaccines in the nonprofit sector. I like to say we make the vaccines no one else will make because they're mostly for diseases of the poor, although we've now we've opened it up to emerging infections of pandemic threats, which still do not, for reasons if you want to go into it, we can discuss, but don't really give much in the way of financial return. So we, uh, we had this program funded, and we made good. We, we developed uh, this vaccine. It was in a collaboration with the New York Blood Center and UTMB uh, Galveston, and it was even manufactured at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, so we were very excited about this. But then we can never attract investment after that, because by then nobody really cared at all about coronavirus vaccines. It was out of, out of sight, out of mind. And um, we really worked hard to bring in, you know, we also enlisted the help of consultants to help us find potential donors and or funders and really zero interest. So it was very discouraging. And we thought the project was pretty much dead. Uh, we had no funding for it, although we kept on using some internal funds to check on that every six months as required by the FDA if you want to keep the file open for stability to make sure the, the vaccine hadn't broken down. It hadn't, it was still good. And then when we saw the new information uh, coming out of China, the Chinese put or were putting up a lot of data on this preprint server called BioArchive, which anybody with a computer and internet connection can download. So the Chinese, you know, contrary to what a lot of people say, the Chinese were not transparent. And from our standpoint, it's not true. They They put up all the information we needed to know to see that our Vaccine was about eighty uh, percent similar to the one that you would need for uh, the SARS two vaccine, as we're or, or for SARS two, as some are calling COVID nineteen. Eighty percent similar, and um, and it bound to the same receptor. Said, oh my God, we may actually have a vaccine. So now we're, you know, looking for investment yet again to see if we can push it through clinical trials and maybe to see if we could have it in time for this uh, current epidemic, although clinical testing really takes a long time. So I'm not sure that'll be the case, but maybe stockpile
0: it for future use. How long do you think it'll be before there is a vaccine that is that is actually uh, going to be distributed and used? And do you think it's possible to relax the protocols for a vaccine given the, the, the threat that COVID-19 presents?
2: Well, I don't know about relaxing protocols, but I think for is a blanket statement about vaccine clinical development. I think there are opportunities to accelerate that. Uh, and but you know, vaccines are the most tested pharmaceuticals we have for safety, despite what the anti-vaccine lobby likes you to believe. it's the highest bar there is because you're immunizing usually well people. So the the uh, the Canadian regulatory agency and our Food and Drug Administration appropriately sets a very high bar for safety. And you know, there has been some discussion, well, can you cut corners here and there? And it turns out that for coronavirus vaccines, the answer is probably no. And, and the reason is because what uh, we saw and others have seen in laboratory animals, if you don't use the right vaccine, you can actually make laboratory animals sicker uh, after they get infected with the virus. And we see this with certain respiratory virus vaccines. It's a phenomenon called immune enhancement. That we don't entirely understand. We think we've worked a way around it, but you know, as you start giving this vaccine to human volunteers, uh, and especially in areas where there's ongoing transmission, because of that potential safety concern or theoretical safety concern, you're going to wind up actually going slower than than you ordinarily would. So that's a long way of saying, uh, you know, we're you know, publicly people are saying a year or eighteen months. I'm not even confident we'll we'll have it then. We may be talking two or three years, unfortunately.
0: And how long do you think? Do we have any idea how long COVID-19 will be among us and uh, whether it will mutate? And I ask this because the H1N1, a- a.k.a. the Spanish flu from 1918 to 1920, was present uh, in three waves, and then it sort of petered out toward the end of 1920. Is, there, is Do we, Can we project how long this one's going to be around?
2: Well, you're seeing a lot of uh, speculation and predictions out there, including President Trump, who's made his own prediction that this will disappear in the summer, and you know he actually may be right, but uh, we we don't know. Uh, some of these uh, coronaviruses are very seasonal, uh, especially the ones that cause upper respiratory infections. But there's a lot of different scenarios that's been put out there. One that, as the president hopes, that it'll, it'll simply disappear in the summer. Others say it may diminish somewhat in the summer and then may pick up again in the fall and winter and ultimately it'll get into a regular seasonal pattern re- returning every year uh others say well it'll it'll just keep uh, it'll be more like flu where uh we see it uh peak in the northern hemisphere in the winter and then in the summer and in, in the southern hemisphere and all year round and the tropics but there's you know with the new virus agent there's absolutely no way to know and uh, so i think the prudent thing to do in this case is to uh plan for a worst case scenario and just assume that transmission is going to be ongoing and if it starts to go down great but i i don't we don't have any strong evidence to, to really count on that
0: dr hotez when you testify before congress do you get the sense that politicians really understand what this is about, and I and I ask this respectfully, because there's the story in the Jerusalem Post today: the White House overruled the Centers for Disease Control on cor- cor- coronavirus advice for elderly to avoid flights.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've I've been involved with uh, pandemics for 20 years uh, in this country. I used before I came moved to Texas a decade ago. I was chairman of microbiology at George Washington University. And I had the microbiology department next to the White House, so I got involved in it in a big way. And you know, I lived through anthrax in 2001 and SARS one in 2003 that also struck Toronto. And then it was uh, uh, in 2009 H1N1, and then we had Ebola. Then we had uh, Zika virus infection, and now and now this. And and politics always played a role. The the difference is. Things are far more toxic right now, and uh, and and there's an extra layer of politics that we haven't seen before, and and so that does complicate. does complicate it, and it also doesn't help that we're. This is all happening in the middle of the Democratic primary in the United States. So, and and not only that, you know, when I go on cable news, which I've been doing a lot, uh, going on MSNBC and Fox News and CNN. Uh, and believe me, it's not easy to go from MSNBC to Fox News to CNN. it's uh, you have to be really really careful. Uh, so there are a lot of minefields there it it makes it makes it uh, much tougher and you know you have to spend time at any venue, whether it's uh, a uh, testimony to Congress or being on cable news to be able to hold off the political uh, the political baggage that often goes with things in order to really address the issues. And it's harder now than it's ever been.
0: Let me come back, if I may, to the issue of uh, those who are at risk, 60 and over. And I know you particularly have concern for those who are 70 years uh, of age and over, where the, uh, the fatality case rate, I believe, uh, and I'm looking at uh, your Twitter feed, is 10 to 18%. What's the perspective yeah. on that, please?
2: Well, that I mean, the, practically speaking, what it means is those individuals who are in uh, nursing facilities especially, we've seen both in China and here now in Seattle, are highly vulnerable. And this virus, you know, will enter into a nursing home, and, you know, it's so highly transmissible, it's just picking off older adults and so that to me is a wake-up call and one of the things that i really pushed hard in congress to get people uh, aware of and i think it had some effect uh to we have to re-look at the practices we're going to use to protect our older individuals in community settings like nursing homes or retirement homes uh and you know to, to get people to sit up and take notice i actually was deliberately provocative which is something i try to avoid um and i, mean, I And I said, you know, this is the angel of death coming and picking off older people. And you could see the body language in the room. uh, I can't imagine. The the House of Representatives, uh, sat. you know, the few that were half asleep all of a sudden sat up and (laughs) and heard that one. And then it got, you know, that was the soundbite for the next 48 hours. Uh, and, you know, I, I had to do it. I mean, I, I didn't know another way to get people to care about this issue. And now we're starting to see in every discussion now coming out of whether it's the White House or on, on TV or, uh, you know, public health officials, they're all talking about what they're going to do to protect their nursing homes. Right. Is, you know, sometimes that's what you got to do.
0: Okay. So uh, just we have about a minute. Uh, there's there's nothing on the horizon that would suggest that we would have a vaccine in the in the relatively short term. It's going to be some significant period of time before I expect a, some significant period of time. Uh, the the other question I have for you, just quickly, is. We know that 16 million people are quarantined, essentially, in northern Italy. Is that in our futures as well in North America? We see sports events being canceled and, and attendance being reduced. Uh, are, we, are we looking at quarantines in North America as well? Well, we might,
3: especially in
2: areas uh, uh, in, where there's community uh, transmission. Uh, we might have to look at what we do for social distancing and to minimize uh, large crowds i hope it doesn't come to that you know americans like canadians we love our sports and it's, we're approaching you know the nba finals what we call march madness college basketball so it'd be tragic if it's, uh, very sad right if that's what we've had to do uh right now if there's no community transmission uh i'm saying let's keep business as usual for now okay but you know we're, as we increase testing, you know, we're going to find more areas of community transmission, uh, and, and, uh, um, and, and then, then we'll have to make that. All right.
0: Uh, Dr. Hotez, I have to jump in. You do remember, though, that Toronto is the, uh, defending NBA champion, right? You do, you do know that in the United States, right? <laughs> You're aware of that.
2: <laughs> I think, I think in the U.S. we call that
4: an inconvenient truth. <laughs>
0: Premier, I spoke last weekend with Laura Lau of Brompton Corp in Toronto, who manages some $2 billion in assets, and we talked about the, uh, the oil sands, and we talked about tech, Frontier Mine, and the company deciding it wasn't going to go ahead, largely because of the regulatory um, morass that awaits anybody who tries to develop energy in, uh, in this country. Here's, uh, I asked her if it was the last nail in the coffin for investors, rather. here's a little bit of what she said.
4: We've had time and time again uh, the government not supportive of projects and whether it be oil projects or even pipeline projects because we need to get the oil to market. And it's been very difficult to get any big energy projects off the ground in Canada.
0: That's somebody managing $2 billion. I'm sure you hear that over and over.
1: Well, Roy, I've heard that from people managing uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, and, um, I mean, there were just news stories uh, th- this past week about uh, a the largest uh, equity fund in the United States apparently pulling out of a, uh, uh, a multi-billion dollar transaction to support an LNG, liquefied natural gas export project out of Quebec. I was going to raise you that know, with you. Yeah, here you've got, as I've said to Justin Trudeau, uh, Roy, We have all 13 provinces and territories from east to west and left to right, every partisan color that has expressed support for massively increasing Canadian exports of liquefied natural gas to create jobs and wealth and tax revenue here and reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by accelerating the thermal coal uh, to natural gas conversion for power production around the world, especially in the developing countries. You've got virtual unanimity in favor of that amongst um aboriginal groups in the country including for example the 20 elected first nations councils in northern dc that support the uh, coastal gas link project uh, and you've got new democrats in new brunswick and liberals on the east i'm sorry in the british columbia and, and, and liberals on the east coast and the soft nationalist government in quebec all support lng so we thought that project energy saguenay Um, was a real opportunity to show, and I said to the Prime Minister, to show, to to create national unity for all of the uh, contention around issues about energy and the environment. Here is one point of virtual unanimity, uh, country-building, wealth-creating, job-creating concept. But we have international investors leaving because of rail blockades and the inability or unwillingness to um, ensure the rule of law. So uh, she is right to to to, to say that, and uh, we have seen. Um, I think the latest count is something like 150 billion dollars of of prospective investment in major energy projects cancelled in the last five years uh, under this federal government. And 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 interestingly, just last week, the week that Tech uh, cancelled its Frontier mine proposal, uh, Vladimir Putin announced. $150 billion of planned new capital investment to develop Siberian uh, oil fields. And two months ago, Russia opened its, I believe, $100 billion massive gas pipeline to China. So, you, you know, I, 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 again, so many of these, these, these columnists in, in, in Toronto and Ottawa, Montreal, saying that, 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 that uh, there's a flight of capital from the oil and gas industry Uh, and that Canada should just wake up and walk away from the industry. No, there's not a flight of of capital away from the industry. There's a flight of capital away from Canadian jobs towards the production of energy in places like Russia and an OPEC dictatorship. Saudi Aramco is getting ready to do its first uh, uh, initial public offering of shares.
0: You're meeting with the Prime Minister, you and the uh, fellow premiers are, at least I don't know if you're meeting or having a conference call, but a number of issues that i know you're going to raise one of them is the actual fiscal fiscal stabilization program equalization program what are you going to say to the prime minister what does what do you want from him
1: well we have the support of all 13 provinces and territories for a very specific request that they retroactively lift the arbitrary cap on something called fiscal stabilization which is like an equalization rebate for have provinces when they see a sudden decline in revenues, we should have received about $2.6 billion from the federal government for that when we saw a 20% decline in our revenues back in 2014, 15, 16, but we received instead $60 million. So we're, you know given that the Feds are not going to change equalization anytime soon, this is one way they could show a bit of fairness to the province that has paid a massive share of the national bills in recent decades.
0: When it comes to the issue of the carbon tax imposed by Ottawa on Alberta, on Saskatchewan, and I'm looking your provinces particularly because neither one returned or sent a Liberal MP to Ottawa, you're telling the Prime Minister it's time to remove the carbon tax until the Supreme Court of Canada makes a decision, correct? Yes, Okay, that's a good answer, and that's based on the uh, on the Court of Appeal in Alberta saying to uh, the Trudeau government, "You don't have that constitutional power." In a very strong four-to-one decision,
1: uh, clearly asserting it that, that uh, the federal carbon tax is "quotes a constitutional Trojan's horse," unquotes that represents an unprecedented violation of provincial jurisdiction under the Constitution. So. Um, it was a stunning rebuke of the federal uh, carbon tax that is punishing people for driving to work and heating their homes, and we hope the federal government will respect the court.
0: So back to this uh, Quebec LNG project for just a moment. Warren Buffett stepping back from investing $4.5 I believe, and that's going to hurt. Um, but Quebec doesn't Quebec have ultimately the final say on whether this project gets built, as opposed to Alberta having the final say on tech, for example?
1: Well, um,
0: do I have that incorrectly? Well,
1: could, yeah, I mean, the federal government's I'm not sure what regulatory role they would play, but I will say this, the government of Quebec supports the Energy Saguenay project very strongly, Right. and we hope to find a way to work with them to keep it alive, despite this unfortunate uh, withdrawal of a potential investment capital.
0: Okay, what I was getting at is Quebec may have a decision-making power that Alberta didn't.
1: Yes, no? Well, let's put it this way. When uh, New Brunswick asked uh, Prime Minister Trudeau to revive Energy East, After it had been cancelled, Prime Minister Trudeau said to New Brunswick, you've got to get Quebec's permission first. In other words, Prime Minister Trudeau gave to Quebec a unilateral veto, a political veto over an intra-provincial pipeline, which the Supreme Court of Canada recently affirmed on the BC case is a matter of exclusive federal jurisdiction. In other words, infrastructure that goes between provinces, like pipelines, um, that's a federal responsibility, but the government of Canada has surrendered that uh, with respect to one province, Quebec, for oil pipelines.
0: Dan, what's the state of affairs for Canada's small business community now following the rail blockades?
3: Well, look, I think Barron had it right. Uh, A lot of them are feeling like they've gone from the frying pan right into the fire with with going from the rail blockades to coronavirus preparations. Uh, For some, of course, the impact at this stage has been limited, uh, but we're getting tons of questions from small and medium-sized business owners across the country, Uh, many of them reporting that they're having ongoing challenges with getting stock and supplies from China of course, that was held up originally in many instances because of the rail blockade, and now there's just a slowdown of, of production and a slowdown of shipping from China. Uh, but the, the, probably the bigger thing that we're hearing from members is questions about what to do about employees who may be returning from either a business trip or a you know, vacation uh, to, to China. Many, of course, Chinese Canadians have uh, gone back to see family, uh, while that has slowed, there are still thousands of people that are coming back, and employers are saying, okay, what do I do to not freak out my other employees, uh, but also to be fair to the person that is coming back and most likely is is just fine.
0: And not just China. I mean, we know what's happening in Italy now. They've uh, essentially shut down part of the country, 16 million people, a quarter of the population. So anybody returning from Italy now is also going to be, uh, well, considered necessary to be Here. tested. You're so.
3: absolutely right. Same for South Korea. Right, uh, we've got we've got a host of countries now that are uh, that are in hot zones uh, that uh, that we have to watch uh, for. Uh, and of course, this is affecting businesses in other ways. Uh, just a, a group of our members said that they had a trade show that they were supposed to be attending in yeah. Milan, and, and that was postponed. Uh, and they've bought tickets, and they're not sure whether they're going to get refunds for any of that. Um, I would say that probably the one of the other big impacts has been on Chinese-Canadian or uh, Asian-Canadian-led businesses that serve the Asian-Canadian communities. Uh, A lot of uh, Chinese restaurants, for example, are reporting dramatic drops in the uh, customer base. I just went to one last weekend, uh, and and it was usually an hour wait, and I got in immediately, and it was half empty. Uh, We've heard those kinds of stories, Chinese malls in in big cities in Canada, Vancouver, Toronto, uh, that are telling us that that uh, really there's there's almost there's very little traffic right now, and of course that has a massive impact not just on the business but also their employees. Uh, they're struggling as to what to do, with, you know, if they need to go to a short-term layoff.
0: Yes, and uh, again, the small business community isn't necessarily doesn't have the resources that a large corporation would have to prepare for these um, these these events like the blockades and now COVID nineteen, and who knows where COVID nineteen is going to go. So it's a particularly stressful time. Um, have you heard from people specifically about contingency plans they might have made, uh, Dan, or is the CFIB recommending action to the small business community?
3: Yeah, we, uh, we are giving some uh, – there's, there's many business associations, us included, uh, on, our, on our website, cfib.ca. We have some help for business owners answering some of the most common questions that we're getting from uh, small business owners across the country but also some help in terms of uh, preparing contingency plans. For some businesses and, and we're thinking about this ourselves as an association is, you know, to try to have people that uh, that are either worried about that or in certain situations do telecommuting uh, and also preparing for for that eventuality. Right. So for some jobs you may be able to do them from home. Uh, but if you're in a customer service capacity that that becomes really really difficult that's where i think we we are looking to government uh, particularly the use of the employment insurance system S- lots of small businesses don't don't have paid sick time uh, and that can be a real gap because they're not sure what to do and does the impact fall entirely on the employee uh, this is where ei provisions or some changes to that could make this a lot easier for for small and medium sized firms in okay. in the instance, in the
0: intro most people, and I've done a lot of reading on this simply because of an interview I did a long time ago with a doctor who was, at the time, in the U.S. Army. It was an elderly gentleman, and he, he told me that more of the patients that he was treating were sick from the flu than had been wounded in battle. So I've been reading about it for years, but I had no idea, and I wonder how many people do know, that that pandemic of 1918 to 20 wasn't a single event. There were three waves. Can you talk to us about that, please?
4: Well, yes, and uh, it was really discovered after the fact that there were three waves. There was a mild wave in the spring of 1918, and it went kind of undetected in a lot of places. Um, And then there was a very severe epidemic in the fall of 1918, so in Canada it began around September. And then there was another mild version of influenza in the winter of 1919, and uh, after that, uh, flu kind of bounced around uh, for a number of years, which is why we now call it the 1918 to 1920 uh, influenza pandemic.
0: So it never came to a full stop. It's uh, it's it's August 1920, and it's over. There never was there never was such a thing. And H1N1 is still around, isn't it?
4: That's right. That's right. But they didn't know it was H1N1 at the time, of course. Because um, actually nobody knew what was causing it.
0: Can you talk to us about that? Why, why was there, why was it a mystery?
4: Well, a um, couple of things. First of all, it it was noticed amongst the troops in uh, France in the spring of, of 1918, and medical officers at the time thought it looked like a, you know, a, a flu like situation, but they couldn't be sure what it was. And um, they didn't at the time have the kind of uh, technology that we have today to identify viruses. So, in fact, the flu virus wasn't identified until 1933. So we're looking at 1918 and they weren't able to visualize it. Yes, they had microscopes and they could look at bacteria, but of course viruses are much smaller and they didn't have the technology. So, based on the symptoms that they were very familiar with, because influenza had been around for a long time, it looked like influenza, but the new medical technology couldn't actually say what it was. And uh, so that, it was frightening because it was yeah. a new. It seemed to be a new thing.
0: When, when you don't know what you're dealing with, but it looks like something that you might have been dealing with, and you have this kind of um, catastrophic reality that it's creating over a period of time. Uh, that That has to be terrifying. It's trying to like we, we can see vi- a virus now. They had They had no, no such signs.
4: That's right. And um, of course, there was no effective way to treat it either. We're talking about the pre-antibiotic pre-viral treatment era. so there was really no effective medical treatment for it.
0: So uh, m- most of what we know about about this pandemic, we know about the second wave. Is that yes. correct? And yes. that's the one that killed between 50 and 100 million people globally. That number is just staggering.
4: Yes, and, and we don't really know how accurate that number is simply because um, there were lots of places in the world, including Canada, where there really wasn't any medical surveillance to keep, to keep track of the number of cases and how many died and so on. So there have been a number of attempts to come up with new estimates. So, the high estimate of 100 million is actually dismissed by many people, and probably the one that you would see most often in print is 50 million, but that's still a staggering number.
0: It is. And what I found very interesting, and I'd ask you to talk, speak to this, please. Of all the people who fell sick, the vast majority recovered.
4: Yes. Absolutely. What are the numbers? Well, um, the estimate for Canada is that one in six Canadians fell sick. Again, this would be in the fall and winter. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: And uh, perhaps uh, 55,000 Canadians died in that period of time. But most people recovered in a week. And so influenza has um, what's called high morbidity, meaning lots of people get sick, and relatively low mortality So when you look at how many people died of the people who got sick, what they call the case fatality rate, um, it was about 2.5%. And And what killed many people was not flu itself but underlying conditions that they had, like secondary infections that uh, led to pneumonia, um, heart conditions, diabetes, any kind of underlying condition that would have made people vulnerable to just about any infection.
0: It's interesting you say that because yesterday we were talking with microbiologist Jason Tetro, mm-hmm. and he brought up the point about underlying conditions like coronary artery disease. Mm. And, and if you have those conditions, don't want to scare people, but if you have those conditions under the wrong circumstances, those conditions could actually end up being a conduit for the flu virus.
4: Yes. Am I right? Yeah. Well, what, you know, what, what happens is you get an infection— and uh, and then your body's ability to fight that infection is limited because of the other condition that you have
0: okay um how did this begin what was going on at the time which might have given rise to this pandemic
4: yeah well i mean this is one of the there there's still a lot of things that aren't known about this pandemic which is what keeps people looking at it and makes it fascinating um, certainly it, it, it erupted during World War I, and it's pretty clear that its spread around the world was connected with troop movements and also the conditions that the troops were living under, uh, you know, these crowded trenches, the crowded hospitals, the crowded troop ships and troop trains and so on, which would, allowed, would, which would have allowed any kind of um, airborne uh, infection to spread rapidly from person to person. Um, so that was a big factor in the spread of the, of the virus worldwide, because, of course, there were also troops from w- around the world in Europe, and they were sending soldiers home. Mm-hmm. And so the virus was going along with the ships that were going back and forth, and uh, this made it possible for the disease to spread worldwide.
0: That's very interesting. If there had been no war, no First World War, maybe we wouldn't be talking about this.
4: You kind of wonder, don't you? Yeah, you do. You, 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 yeah.
0: Because those uh, if, if we're going to look at the troop movement situation, you're putting a lot of people in a confined area and you're moving them together, and they don't really have anywhere to go. And they're just, you know, they're together in a train or together on a ship. That's right. And that would be sort of a, 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 a breeding ground for, for the virus.
4: Sure. And, and here's, a, here's another interesting um, war connection, Roy. Um, you know that the 1918 flu is often called the Spanish influenza. Yes. Well, it, it's called that not because it started in Spain, but because of the war that was going on in Europe, and there was censorship going on. And neither side of the war wanted the other side to know that they had soldiers that were getting sick. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Spain was neutral at the time. And so when the uh, people started falling sick from influenza, it was being discussed in the papers. And so it was, you know, the first word of it came out in the Spanish press, and then it got called Spanish influenza, but it had nothing to do with the origin of it.
0: Dr. Herring, uh, so how did this flu get to Canada, and and was it... Another case of troop movements?
4: Well, Roy, it was a case of troop movements, but it wasn't what we once thought. Um, The earliest ideas about it was that flu was brought back to Canada uh, with demobilized soldiers from Europe. But research that was done by Mark Humphreys, who's in the history department at Laurier, um, he actually demonstrated that it came to Canada via the United States, uh, because the epidemic was uh, sort of embroiling the East Coast before it came to Canada, and soldiers were being sent by train through Canada to be shipped via um, Montreal or Halifax overseas. I mean, their main place of debarkation was New York, but some of them were being shipped through Canada, and some of them were training in Canada. And uh, so the flu seems to have uh, come in connection with troop movements. Yes, but from the United States, okay. not from Europe.
0: And this is all. This is what we find out as the reach go, research goes on, years yes. afterward. Now, when we talk about Canada, the population was around two million at that time, wasn't it?
4: I think it was around eight.
0: Was it eight million okay? Uh, and f- fifty thousand people died in this country. If I have that yes. number correctly. And, and, yeah, what, and the
4: estimate is that one in six got sick.
0: One in six. Okay.
4: There is an average mortality rate for the country as a whole, which you really have to take with a grain of salt, right. which is six people per one thousand died oh, yeah. from influenza pneumonia.
0: That would be six a that would be a one thousand huge number. Um, when we talked the other day, you said social conditions impacted significantly on the death rate, and and. Good nursing is what got people through it.
4: Well, yes, because um, I think what a lot of people today don't realize is that back then, most people didn't have doctors. It was only the very wealthy people who had a personal physician who would come and do a home. It's
0: amazing to think of, isn't it, in 2020?
4: It is. It is. And um, so what got people through this was not care by a doctor, but care by somebody who kept them fed, kept them warm, kept them hydrated, so that they could get through this uh, really nasty infection. And you
0: said to me, at that time, there were networks of care that started to be established. Communities did amazing things to help out. Other communities isolated themselves, tried to keep people out. But there was also a great movement toward volunteerism.
4: Yes, and um, some of it was organized so that, for example, there was in Ontario what was called the SOS as in, you know, Save Our Souls, the Ontario Volunteer Emergency Health Auxiliary was set up. Mm -hmm. And these were uh, primarily women who volunteered to, uh, often through churches or um, other sort of women's club organizations, and they prepared meals. They would go and um, uh, take care of people in their homes, set up soup kitchens, um, and there was a tremendous uh, sense of, the need to provide this kind of care.
0: Okay. Small sidebar here, but it, I think it's worth talking about. There's always going to be somebody who's going to sense opportunity when, uh, even in the <laughs> worst of circumstances. And you told me. Uh, tell us about the. Tell us about the bicycle story.
4: I love the bicycle story. Um, well, first of all, I should say most of the information uh, came through newspapers. Okay. And newspapers were, were great sources of uh, I'm reminding the public about everything. Right. So the CCM Bicycle Company ran an ad uh, during the, the pandemic saying something like, to avoid the flu, buy a bicycle. Get out in the country, get some fresh air, get away from the crowded trolley cars and so on. Ride a bike and you'll be able to avoid the flu. You're going to need one in the spring anyway.
0: <laughs> I mean, I don't want to laugh Fred, uh, under the circumstances, but it is kind of, just give you a little bit of bit of the giggles, and insurance companies were saying oh, buy, yes, were buy insurance.
4: insurance? Companies who would say, well, we have special coverage for Spanish flu sufferers. Um, there were all kinds of uh, ads for, I think, home remedies that you could of take, like Dr. Chase's menthol bag, which you would wear around your neck. Um, because, of course, there was no effective treatment for
0: it. No, and people were desperate. People. Uh, Dr. Herring, in, uh, in the time we have left, what's the takeaway from this pandemic in
4: 1918-20? Well, for me, one of the takeaways is uh, it was no single event. It was something that recurred, and that there were many stories and many circumstances that made the death rate different in some places compared to others. Um and I think most people don't realize that in 1918, even when we hear this terrible death sound toll, most people survive.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.